the death of a child six years old was accomplished with a wantonness of purpose almost incredible. After a solemn convocation, it was decreed that the elephant should be scared away, and the mode of effecting this was by holding the child on a hot shovel, and then pumping cold water on his head. You're listening to Strange Familiars, true stories of the paranormal, cryptids, hauntings, the occult, mythology, UFOs, folklore, weird and forgotten history. Please make sure to like and subscribe to Strange Familiars on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you are listening. Please share the Strange Familiars page and episodes on Facebook and other social media. If you have experienced something strange, or if you know a story you would like us to cover, Email strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, and of course, strangefamiliars.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 10, Iron and the Supernatural, part 1. Well, we made it to double digits with the episodes. We're glad that everybody's listening and seems to be enjoying the show. If you do like what we're doing, please consider becoming a patron. You go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. 
The show takes time and money to put together. We get a lot of great compliments about the production value and the music and the on-location segments, and that's great, and we love doing it, and we love doing the show, but it all takes time and money. So if you can help, even a little bit, $3 a month, you get bonus content. If you can do more, there's other rewards, T-shirts, stickers, pins, etc. But like I said, even at just $3, you can get bonus content. I'm currently working on two or three different new shows for the patrons. We'll get them out to you as soon as possible. And we should have other content as well for you. Again, that's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. And as always, thanks to all of our current patrons. So another quick note before we get started. I will be at Gettysburg Paracon, June 23rd and 24th. That's a Friday and Saturday. I know these things are usually Saturday and Sunday, but that is a Friday and a Saturday. June 23rd and 24th, 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. That's at the Inn of 1863, 516 Baltimore Street, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. So come on out, stop by, say hi. I'll have copies of my books there I can sign for you. Some Strange Familiars swag, t-shirts, stickers, and the like as well as some art prints and so forth. So stop by and say hi if you can. I love meeting listeners. I love talking to you. I love hearing your stories. That's the Gettysburg Paracon, June 23rd and 24th. Tonight is our first show in a series of shows we're doing on Iron and the Supernatural. There's lots to cover with this, and I think we can... uh, hit lots of interesting areas with it so we're going to start with iron as it relates to the fey folk that's the fairies and elves of legend particularly from the celtic areas but not exclusively coincidentally one of the many many podcasts i listen to the celtic myth pod show they recently did an episode called sussex celts fairies and folklore in this particular episode they make a very interesting distinction between iron and cold iron. Iron is simply the raw material from the earth, the mineral, and the ore found in the earth. And as this was of the earth, it seemed to have no power over the supernatural. Cold iron was iron that had been worked by human hands, by a blacksmith or or otherwise, and transformed into something man-made. And it was cold iron that seemed to have power Uh, over the supernatural power to protect from the fey folk. I'll be talking with Joshua Cutchin in a moment, and we discuss a bit why iron is used as defense against the supernatural. But it's important to note that this seems to go across cultures. Iron was mined from the earth, and again and again you find this idea that the earth is where many supernatural spirits are said to dwell. Some ancients connected iron with evil itself, Plutarch noted iron as the bones of Typhon, who was a being of great evil from Greek and Egyptian mythology. Typhon, like iron, was also said to come from the earth. Iron was believed to repel ghosts, fairies, and witches. The Norse said that trolls couldn't touch iron. Iron objects were said to be imbued with power. Horseshoes, of course, were good luck. Horseshoe nails were used as protective charms in Ireland. Coffin nails affixed to the lintel of doorways were said to keep out spirits. In China, long iron nails were driven into trees to exorcise certain demons which lived within them. 
In Scandinavia, knives were placed at the bottom of boats or nails and reeds to protect from river spirits. So iron has this long cross-cultural relationship with the supernatural. And it comes up a lot in Tales of the Fey Folk from Celtic Myths. So we're going to talk with Joshua Cutchin. He's quickly becoming one of my favorite folks to talk to, and he's certainly my go-to guy for the Fey Folk. So, talking with Joshua Cutchin, and Joshua, give the name of your books again. The name of my books are um, A Trojan Feast, uh, On the Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch, and The Brimstone Deceit, which is about smells and the paranormal. And as of a few days ago, I am a contributing member uh, to a collection of essays uh, released by Robbie Graham entitled UFOs Reframing the Debate. And all three of those are available through your preferred large online bookseller (laughs) if there is such a thing right before the one eats all the others yeah exactly and you're working on a new book uh that's roughly about changelings yes yeah i started i actually started that um i've been sort of working on the outline for a while but i actually started uh putting well not pen to paper these days i put fingertips to keys um early this morning Uh, and it's coming it's 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 probably the easiest and quickest introduction that I've had for a while, which is refreshing for me because sometimes, you know, I feel like some of the concepts I have to set up, take a, take a moment or two to, to really get across. And this one's, this one's pretty, pretty straightforward idea. So it's easy to, easy to jump right in. Now, since we're going to be talking about a lot of the, you know, fairy lore tonight is the new book. Do you kind of stick uh, within that, the, the changelings from, from the Fae or is it, are you going across cultures and, well, the the idea is roughly for it to be um, sort of the first look, the first pan paranormal look at child abduction, paranormal child abduction from the fairy folklore, from the fairy faith to the UFO era, basically. Um, so, unlike my other books, which are sort of survey and analysis, this one's a little bit more chronologically oriented. So, the first half is definitely dealing with a lot of the fairy lore, um, and then the second half is dealing with sort of uh, you know the modern alien abduction. Uh, phenomena, but there's a bunch of worldwide stuff in there too. I mean, I, th- I feel like it's sort of be a disservice because some of the some of the worldwide motifs um, re- re- relating to you know the changeling idea or even just uh, you know child abduction um, just, just fall in line with the fairy folklore and the UFO lore so neatly that I felt like it was important. So that's roughly what it is. And then I'm you know got to throw Sasquatch in there too. Oh, um, yeah. With actually, actually, um, I, I, the um, there's going to be some uh, moments from your Pennsylvania Bigfoot book that are going <laughs> to are going to make it in there. Awesome. Um, uh, so yeah, it's 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 going to be basically my my real axe that I have to grind is that if you take any aspect of alien lore or fairy lore and you compare it to the other, vice versa, you can just keep on pulling that apart and it'll keep on yielding more and more similarities. Um, so this is, you know, sort of a an exercise in illustrating that. So we're talking about changelings in regard to fairy lore and so forth. It, do, is there like a, can you define that or, or uh, give a, a simple sort of description? Yeah, so the, the simplest way is that uh, in fairy folklore, particularly of the British Isles, if a child was not watched over carefully, it might be substituted with a child from the fairies. Now, exactly what that meant 
was was sort of up for debate. In some cases, it meant that the fairies left a you know sickly fairy baby in its place. In some instances, it meant that they left a you know an old decrepit fairy in its place disguised as a child or in some cases it meant that they literally just left a log in the uh, fairy's place disguised as a child using their sort of fairy glamour uh a lot of different reasons for this um the one of the primary reasons they overrun it two time and again is because there was this idea that fairy babies or even fairy old fairy adults needed human milk uh to thrive um, another another common reason that you'll see is that these human children were taken uh, to increase uh, the the stock, the breeding stock of the fairies as well. So these are the, the idea of the changeling is a very specific thing, not not just something that changes shape in, in terms of what we're talking about. It's it's uh, yeah, no, it, it it definitely means. I mean, it it sometimes sometimes they were referred to as ex changelings, but the actual changeling phenomena is almost exclusive to fairy folklore, and I say almost exclusive because you'll see. Um, reflections of it in cultures as far away as you know american first nations cultures um but for the most part it's it's that sort of european fairy folklore thing uh the original term changeling actually meant um again ex-changeling the idea that uh, a personage of royalty might be swapped out for uh, one of the common folk in an effort to sort of elevate their status as a child and this dovetails very nicely into our conversation about iron because one of the ways to tell if there was a changeling was to touch it with iron, right? If if your child had been replaced with a, a changeling. Yeah, there were, there were countless methods of doing that, but one of them was to touch it with iron. Um, in some less, some less, uh, less generous households, they might actually toss iron at the child. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh yeah. It's funny. You read these changeling, these methods of, uh, d- you know, of confirming the presence of a changeling and they're all really horrifying child abuse scenarios. <laughs> And one of them is, yeah, uh, literally tossing iron at a child. Or in some cases, you'll see steel, which, of course, is derivative of, of iron uh, to some degree in, in, that, in, in place of iron as well. Just sort of like touching an iron dagger or something uh, to the forehead. It was uh, very common to hang a, some sort of implement like a tool or some tongs or a shovel or, believe it or not, a knife above or place it in the crib to prevent uh, the fey folk from coming and abducting your child. Yeah, I read a story about either putting a knife or I think they like a pair of shears or something under yeah. <laughs> under the child. Yeah, the, the the pair of shears is a really popular one because like I said this is I've spent a lot of time thinking about this lately. <laughs> so I've been doing my I've been doing my homework on it. The, the the pair of shears was specifically because it combined two things. It usually combined iron or, you know, some sort of metal and the, uh, the sign of the cross. So for a lot of poor families that couldn't afford, you know, an actual cross cast of iron, they would just use the scissors in the vague shape of a cross. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, of folklore on the, you know, the use of Christianity as, uh, as a way to repel, or prevent um, repel fairies, or prevent uh, child abduction. Um, of course, you know the 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 strongest safeguard was to have your child baptized. And the time when they were most dangerous was between birth and baptism, because they could still be claimed by the fairies. Right. But uh, baptism, uh, in general, uh, was a safeguard. Yeah. Well, you know, you think about um, 
from the standpoint of a of a Christian, I mean, a lot of the fairy lore that we're talking about comes from the British Isles. So, you know, uh, for a Christian Irishman, the child is in that liminal period between being born and being accepted into the church. Um, you know, in, in some areas, they didn't even name the child until their actual christening. So you'd you'd, you'd find that um, as 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 the the best, basically the main safe way of safeguarding your child against being taken by the fairies. But you know, at, at the same time, if your child died before it was baptized, oftentimes they said that it would be you know sort of brought into the ranks of the fairies. There's this really weird line between the fairies being discrete entities and just being spirits of the dead. Um, you know, you'd have children who were taken by the fairies, and that same language would be used when a child died suddenly and without 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 uh, without warning. They were, you know, the child was taken from us. The fairies were taken. So you see a lot of this overlap between just the dead and and fairies in general. And is there any indication why iron became this this sort of defense against the fey folk in any way? Uh, you know, sort of originally or. It was just one of those things that was always there. Yeah, it's there's there's there are a lot of there are a lot of different opinions, and that's something that I've been racking my brain with. Um, you know, some people have said that iron symbolizes strength. Some people have said that it represented you know mankind harnessing nature, sort of as one of those almost Promethean gifts that we received from the other world, as you know our, our ability to bend nature to our will. There are some people, you know, another explanation for the fairies is that they actually were beings and they actually were the Picts who inhabited that part of the world before, you know, before uh, modern day man came in there. And that the Picts uh, usually were using primitive tools and weren't familiar with iron, so they tended to fear it. But if you look at it, it's iron has this reputation of being a way of warning off the supernatural that goes into antiquity. I mean, Pliny the Elder talked about iron being this gift with which we could basically, again, bend reality, bend nature to our will. There are some people who have claimed that mankind first encountered iron in the form of meteors. Um, meteoric iron is is a very common source of the element. You know, at the same time, I, I've been looking into an alternative idea. It's a little bit esoteric, but there is a certain form of, of uh, iron deficiency anemia that's very common uh, to Ireland. And part of me wonders if perhaps there isn't some sort of subconscious expression of this of this fear among you know the Irish at the time, uh, where they felt like they had to have iron around because somehow in the back of their mind, their mind that they knew that they were iron deficient. That's a very crude and 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 and, uh, and simplified way of of expressing this idea, a germ of an idea that hopefully I'll be able to flesh out in the book a little bit more. But it's 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 a little line of inquiry that I don't think anybody's quite gone down. Yeah, that's interesting. I, there's a something that has come up that that we kind of make fun of again and again on, on this podcast when we bring it up but it reminds me of uh I had a question for a certain group of of Bigfoot fellows that that uh, are pretty strongly in the in the ape in the woods camp and I asked them why are these things seen around iron forges these old furnaces and stuff so often you get a lot of reports of them around there and they said that their answer was that they are eating the dirt to get the minerals <laughs> I mean, now it's you know, and we we tend to make fun of it here. It's just because I I don't I don't see any living creature taking handfuls of dirt. But you know, maybe what do I know? I can't you know, maybe they're right. But it does remind me kind of what you're saying with the iron deficiency. It's it's uh it's an interesting sort of tie-in. <laughs> I think that it's. I mean, I, I think it's a little bit silly. Um, 
But at the same time, uh, you know, you talked about uh, animals who, you know, aren't who don't eat dirt. But there are actually a, there's actually a species of uh, of of uh, parrot. I think it's a it's a macaw, who actually they've been observed uh, eating dirt to um, compensate for a sodium deficiency. So that's it's it's not unheard of. Um, yeah, the real question yeah, is, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I just I. I, I... I, the idea, I just uh, picturing a, a Bigfoot shoveling handfuls of dirt into his mouth. It's, yeah, well, it's it's not. I mean, as far as I know, it's definitely not primate behavior. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and you'd think that if Bigfoot are the you know bloodthirsty monsters that a lot of people think they are, they'd be getting plenty of iron. Um, right. Yeah. You know, it, it, even, yeah. They're supposed to blood hunt deer thirsty. and so forth. Yeah. Exactly. But what? But what? What I think is more interesting to me, at least, is that. You know, you're talking about that being a connection where, regardless of the reason, the entities, in this case Bigfoot, seem sort of attracted to iron as opposed to being repelled. You know, it wasn't uncommon. You'll find some contradictory writings where actually the fairy folk were said to be skilled in smithing iron, which is like quite literally the opposite of what you hear most of the time. Right. But I find it interesting that, uh, that there could be some sort of attractive element there as well. Yeah, and I think the way I put it in my first book was that, they, you know, I wondered if they were once making iron there, which was to repel these things, and now they're no longer making iron there. And it's as if the, the poles of the magnet got reversed in that sense. That's an interesting take. But at the same time, I would I would just as much think that, I mean, so, yeah, iron was a repellent, but also, you know, fire and heat were a, big, were a very strong repellent. Um, to, to, you know, sort of fairy folk in the sense that like, I mean, to the extent rather that the color red would remind them of heat and would remind them of fire in some instances and actually um, sort of force them or encourage them to stay away. And, and of course, that's obviously, I mean, I would think that I would like to know how often actually, you know, flesh and blood mammals are seen around forges because i can't imagine that it would be a that it would be an environment when active that would be very inviting to them with all the heat and the and the flames and whatnot i mean i would think would, all animals would be more or less hardwired to avoid it like the plague i would think so yeah and, and and we're talking these sightings and so forth we're talking of of uh you know these are old iron forges no longer active right right but you had said that the idea that they were dormant would be possibly attracting the Bigfoot with a flip of the switch. But maybe it's the fact that they're dormant that, you know, the Bigfoot feels safe and going back again. You know, just to completely speculate. Right. And and it could be that it's simply an abandoned place. You know, they're, they're seen in cemeteries, too. They're supposedly seen around ghost towns. It could just be simply like this is not, you know, people are not here actively. Let's I'm curious. I want to see what's what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, that definitely seems to me, um, as critical as I have been in the past of, you know, sort of the biological Bigfoot I- idea, that seems to me like the, the most lo- logical answer. I mean, you'll find all sorts of animals being opportunists in terms of moving in wherever, you know, humans move out. Um, and I can imagine that, you know, if Bigfoot is flesh and blood and is as human-like as reports would seem to indicate um i can't help but imagine that it would definitely be the first one to take advantage of it you know maybe stake it out for a while and keep an eye on you know whether people are going to come back and then after a couple of months when they decide no one is just you know heading on in sure and before people think i'm shifting this to another bigfoot show let me also say mothman is seen around these things dogman 
shadow people, ghosts, etc., etc. It's not just Bigfoot. I just brought Bigfoot up for the iron eating or the the, the soil eating uh, uh, little story there, which we come back to again and again. Well, you know, it's an interesting point, and you know, if, honestly, you, you could write a book on iron and the paranormal um, because the 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 jury is very much out. I mean, there's also the idea that perhaps some of the superstition surrounding iron has just been grandfathered in from an older time from an older time when it was used to repel demons, which is a very common thing that you see as well. But even then, that's still not an answer. You know, one of the most compelling bits of scholarship that I have found is in uh, Sidney Hartland's uh, Science of Fairy Tales, which says that the fairy folk sort of represented an archetypal pre-Iron Age version of humanity and that iron sort of represented as being diametrically opposed to them of being of the earth. But, you know, I don't know. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't answer the uh, – it answers the fairy question, but it doesn't answer the, the, the demon question right. at all. And, and iron certainly is man. I mean, it's, it's taking something from the earth, which I'm sure there are umpteen stories about fairies coming from the earth, from within the earth. As Absolutely, as, yeah. Yeah, as many as there are about these other creatures. So we're taking this, this raw – you know, element from the earth and we're working it and we're, we're, you know, literally forging it into objects from nothing, you know, fr- from clumps of nothing, you know, we're, we're, we're bringing these uh, objects out of the, the iron or, or, you know, ha- literally hammering them out of the iron. So maybe there's something in that, that it's, it's, uh, we've taken it from the earth and we've made it ours. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's that idea of bending reality to your will, I mean, you could be, you could argue in that sense. It's very similar to the reason that we have so much mystery and uh, folklore surrounding the harvest and surrounding grain and agriculture, because again, it's this idea of of harnessing something that is wild and really making it remaking it in our image. Sure. Something I came across that I found really interesting was the Faelor as it kind of moved from the Celtic Isles and into Canada. There was a tale about fireflies I saw. One particular group, I forget what part of Canada, but they're they're pretty seriously uh, not afraid of fireflies. But they, you know, they they definitely consider them to be not good omens. And they said that uh, they would put pins in the fences to as a protection against against fireflies. Pins like like uh, steel pins or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting because you do see like so, so we mentioned like a handful of the sort of tools and implements that were used to repel fairies, but you will find pins and, and needlework or, you know, uh, pins and thread rather, or needles and thread as, as bits of, 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 uh, things you'd find around the house to protect your children. Now, as for why that is, obviously there's the iron steel connection that you can jump to, but there's also a recent little bit of, of uh, lore that I wasn't aware of that, it's said that the fairies were bloodless. And of course, you can look at sort of how this is reflected in alien greys, who sort of more or less appear bloodless and you know, sort of gray and pasty. But uh, the idea was that the color red not only frightened them because of it reminded them of, of fire, it actually reminded them as well of the fact that they were bloodless and sort of they couldn't, for whatever reason, stand that. So I wonder if perhaps the the idea of pins as sort of being a safeguard, in addition to having that steel metal iron, steel metal, metal iron aspect, 
could also, you know, perhaps remind them of the fact that they don't have any blood. Now, as far as fireflies, these were these were literal like insect fireflies, or were these like sort of uh, will of the wisp type things? I believe they were the the actual insect fireflies that they were they were you know basically considered them to be some sort of fairy being. Weird, interesting. See, I always remember people saying you had to you had to you know catch fireflies while they were lit to to be able to see them, but that's. I never found that's the case because what you do is you see where they are when they, when they go off and then you can still, if it's still light enough, you can sort of catch where they are and end up catching them that way. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I, I have a hard time believing that, that, uh, that rural folks wouldn't realize that they were just another bug, you know? Yeah. But it might just be seen as a, as a bad omen. You know what I mean? Not, not so much that, uh, they're coming to get you, <laughs> but maybe they were just, uh, considered to be some sort of, not good omen of of the summer. I should have more details on this story, but I do not. <laughs> someone. <laughs> that's will, an interesting. Someone, that's an interesting tidbit, though. Someone will write and tell me to get down to the bottom of it. And I know there are other stories about poking fairies with pins, and I'm sure that comes from the same root as uh, as you were saying, e- either the iron or the bloodless, or or both. Or just, or just, you know, I mean, it's. So here's here's the thing that I've I've discovered. The the phenomena itself doesn't change. What we build around the phenomena constantly changes. So the, the way that we react and the and the and the motivations that we put behind these things, well, not the motivations don't always change either. It's something I'm going to get into in the book. But like a lot of the a lot of the superstition that we build around these things changes with with the time and with the place. Um, there are so many different recommended fairy repellents. I mean, it's I'm going to have to make it as short and punchy as I can in this new book because if I went to it in, at length, it all, would almost be like the half the length of the book because there's so many of these just random folksy remedies that, you know, some of them, like the iron thing, there's some depth to, and some of them just seem to be the most superficial, whimsical out of left field idea ever. And I could totally see, like, I haven't quite heard of it, but I can totally see somebody just saying that you need to poke a fairy because they can't stand pain or something along those lines. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so, so I, 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 it, it might be the blood thing that I mentioned it might be the steel thing or, you know, it was also really common to have a lot of these remedies, um, tied up into one, you know, in one particular, uh, remedy all in and of itself. I mean, like, as I mentioned earlier, you've got, uh, You've got scissors, which can be a cross, and they can be made of iron. And now if we add this pain thing in there, it's an aspect there as well. So it's not uncommon to see these sort of different uh, remedies get thrown into a pot and blend it all together. Right. And a a lot of these same defenses were then shifted to be used for witches as well. A lot of the same things to, to protect from fairies, I've noticed, you know, are likewise used to protect from, from witches or from witchcraft. Yeah, I have a good friend who is. I'm not sure if he is, if his, um, if his real name is out there. But if you're familiar with Dr. Beachcombing's Bizarre History blog, and anyone who isn't should definitely check it out because it's a it's a great website. But I am I'm I'm friends with the good doctor. Um, he's actually a scholar, a uh, folklore scholar in England, and uh, he has made mention uh, I think several times in the past about how whatever 
is accused of fairies will eventually be accused of witches and whatever, you know, and vice versa. So it makes complete sense that uh, these sort of remedies would, would graft over because, you know, in, in this sort of area that, that I'm looking at specifically, you know, this, this area of area of paranormal child abduction, that was something else that witches were accused of. Now their methods or not their methods, but their motivations were, you know, a good deal differently than, than uh, the fairies met uh, motivations. Usually, According to who you talk to, they wanted them for converts or they wanted them for food or they wanted them for, you know, to make witch ointment. There's a great that great moment in the beginning of the uh, the film, The Witch, where that's exactly what you see. And no, it's not a spoiler because it happens within the first, what, five minutes, ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it's it, it whatever, you know, what part and parcel for witches will be part and parcel for fairies always. So I'm going to just throw out some things here. Nails, iron nails, in uh, in fairy lore. Yes. Oh yeah. Pins. We already went over horseshoes. Mm-hmm. Horseshoes. Anything made of iron, you'll you'll find. So uh, this is a, a a list of redundancy. If I just keep naming naming items. <laughs> yeah. Anything anything made of iron, and, and to a lesser extent, you know, steel, and to a lesser extent, just metal. Uh, you'll find. You'll find. It doesn't seem like. It doesn't seem like there's any sort of implement that isn't worth having. Is there any particular story that regarding iron and uh, fairy lore that that you consider a favorite? <laughs> Let me think here. I've, I've got so many in my, I've got so many in my in my head. Um, one of the anecdotes that I think is uh, that I think is not a particular story per se. Of course, you know the stories and the advice and everything all sort of tend to blend together, um, but. I've thought that uh, one, one of my favorite remedies that I read, it was uh, in a book uh, by another fairy scholar by the last name of Ashleman, um, mentioned that not only was it okay to have you know a knife in the crib, but it was okay to have um, a knife dangling above the child's face. Oh, wow. <laughs> which, which I thought was the most extreme, the most extreme uh, – extreme solution and talk about talk about being worse probably than being taken by the fairies you know (laughs) there were no child protective services yeah exactly now one of the weirder things that i've heard is that you know it was also common so you know uh, theft by the fairies could be could be physical but it could also be and often be um accompanied by a whirlwind the whirlwind actually takes the child away ufos um (laughs) but um one of the remedies was to toss a bit of clay at the whirlwind or possibly toss a, a dagger. Again, it's this idea of the iron somehow intervening. It's almost like, I mean, if, if you really wanted to get, you know, literal and materialist about it, it's almost like iron is a poor conductor of whatever energy these things feed off of or, or use or, you know, how they, how they maneuver and whatnot. Right. But the motifs are, are really consistent you know, from, from story to story and also, you know, from culture to culture. Yeah. I mean, some, some of the remedies for like, the iron remedy is it, you'll find across all across Europe. Same thing happens in folk songs. The traditional songs, are, I mean, there are truisms across traditional folk songs. For instance, you probably always want the, the milk white steed's going to be faster than the dapple gray. If the guy named his name, Willie, he's probably a bad dude. You want to stay away from him. But uh, otherwise they tell a lot of the same stories again and again. <laughs> Often I get very tired of people saying, oh, it's, you know, everything's been done before, everything's a remix, um, because I feel like it's really reductive because I think the nuance is where things are important. But having said that, 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of these same things just keep on repeating over and over again. Well, and there might be something to that as well, because let's take the alien abduction experience. These are very similar stories, which go from different people that, that have totally different lives, different uh, you know, different occupations, different places in society, diff- different countries, different cultures, and they're telling the same story. Yeah, I mean, it's... Which, I mean, some people will say, and I think there's some validity to this, that it means that it's all part of some sort of deep-seated human archetypal thing. Um, But at the same time, I I think that in some cases, it does suggest that there is some sort of objective reality to these things. Yeah, and if it is archetypal, the lines are getting very blurry in, in the way that the these archetypes are affecting people's lives and the effects are very real uh, with the alien experience with the, even, even with uh, the intense uh, cryptid experiences, people's lives are intensely affected by these. So if they are archetypes and, and I'm not going to, you know, argue against anyone who, who says they, they are, cause I don't have any proof otherwise, then we need to talk about how they are uh, sort of crossing over in, into uh, people's real lives in such powerful ways. <laughs> yeah, the oh, it's just an archetype thing. I think we've mentioned this before, but it really is just shifting the explanation to somewhere else. It's not, that's not an answer, you know? Right. <laughs> that's not an answer. It's, it's the equivalent of saying, you know, oh, well, how did that plot hole get covered in Star Wars? Oh, the Force told him. You know, it's like, <laughs> that doesn't, that's not an answer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, you're just making another <laughs> symptom it's uh or changing the name of the symptom really you're not you're not solving the problem yeah exactly precisely so joshua do you have a website i do um joshuacutchin.com j o s h u a c u t c h i n uh i've tried to be a little bit more diligent about blogs but you know if you're the kind of person who likes to read uh, like four blogs a year that's the website for you um <laughs> But, uh, you know, because honestly, like I, I try to focus on if I'm writing, I'm, I'm tending to focus on the long form stuff. Uh, but I definitely keep all of my interviews um, up to date on there. So you can listen to, you know, four four weeks worth of me if you want to. Um, or, uh, you know, I also try to keep just general news uh, updated as well. So even if it's not uh, time for not time for an actual you know, blog post, it'll at least be a short, uh, short note about what's happening with me or, you know, how the books are coming along or where you can see me or find me next. Awesome. And you can hear, uh, Joshua and me sometimes depending on the week on where where did the road go? Yeah. I should have remembered that because Soraya would, would, uh, would berate me if I forgot again. I, there was a period of time when I kept on forgetting it, but yes, (laughs) recurring roundtable contributors at where did the road go.com. All right. And I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. I'm, uh, I'm endlessly going to uh, the the well of Joshua Cutchin for my uh, fairy expertise. So, <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm sure we'll have you back on again soon. I'd love to. Anytime. I couldn't go without giving you some old stories on the topic. The first one deals with different ways to protect children from the supernatural, including iron and some other things. The story came from the Freeport Journal Standard, November 17th, 1888. 
Watching the Babes The Widespread Belief in Infancy's Unseen Foes The Fears of Superstitious Mothers Warding Away Evil Spirits Curious Customs of Different Countries Keeping Off Fairies Detection of Changelings As soon as the babe is ushered into the world, a host of superstitious observances surround it in many countries, for its enemies are many. Aside from its natural foes, disease, teething, colic, and the like, there is a widespread belief in unseen foes, fairies, witches, and the goblins that terrify the mother long before the child is susceptible of fright at their bare mention. The greatest danger is that the fairies will, in an unguarded moment, exchange the healthy, mortal child for one of their puny offspring. Mothers in every European country fear this, and various devices are adopted to prevent such an undesirable exchange. Such precautions have reference also to other evil spirits which may harm the infant, and especially to the influence of the evil eye. All these influences are especially potent before the child is christened, and it is at this early period of its existence that the measures are taken to thwart all these evil influences. In Denmark, salt, bread, and iron are placed in the cradle, and it is thought necessary in Scotland to put iron in the bed with a mother that she may be protected also. In Brittany, even though these precautions may be taken, it is still thought dangerous to leave the child alone in the house, for fear lest the corrigan will carry it off. In modern Greece, the mother, before putting the child in its cradle, turns three times around before the fire while singing her favorite song to warp away evil spirits. The Spanish Custom In Spain, the child's face is swept with a pine tree bough. A key is hung up before the cradle, or fennel seed or bread and cheese are hung about its neck. A coral necklace that has been steeped in the baptismal font is equally efficacious. The Turks load the child with amulets as soon as it is born, and a small bit of mud, well steeped in a jar of hot water, prepared by previous charms, is stuck on its forehead. A small bit of red ribbon is all the Romanian infant requires to secure it from harm, while the Estonian mother attaches a bit of azafetida to the child's neck. Garlic, salt, bread, and steak are first put in the cradle of a newborn child in Holland. A sufficient preventive for an Irish babe is a belt made of women's hair. The following process was used in Scotland to render the child safe from evil influences. Sixpence was borrowed from neighbors, a fire was kindled in the room, the door locked, and the child placed in a chair before the fire. An old woman then placed in a tablespoon of water the sixpence and as much salt as would dissolve. She then stirred the contents with her forefinger until the salt was dissolved, after which she moistened the soles of the child's feet and the palms of its hands three times, gave it to taste of the water twice, and touched its head with her forefinger, saying, God preserve fra scythe. The balance of the spoonful was then thrown into the fire. The Open Bible 
In some parts of Scotland and Germany, an open Bible left with a child will effectively keep off the fairies. Should an exchange of infants be made by the fairies, the Scotch mother has a way of getting her own child back. She must carry the changeling to a fairy spot or ring in the field, or in a shady dell, where a sewing is frequently heard, and she must also take with her butter, milk, cheese, and eggs. If those gifts disappear after a while, she may safely return home to find her own child in the cradle. A pair of tongs or a knife put in the cradle will satisfy the Welsh mother as to her child's safety. The knife is also used in parts of England. In the Scotch Highlands, ash sap will protect the child from all evil influences, as the ash is all-powerful against witches and such folk. In Wales, it is believed that changelings may be detected by certain summary tests. Bathe the child with a solution of foxglove, or hold it in a shovel over a fire. This last test is said to have been applied as late as 1857. The changeling will die as a result of either test. Fire is used in the same way in Denmark, but the child is only threatened with the test. But the hot shovel is used in Ireland. Whipping it or throwing it into the water was deemed a sure test in Denmark. Luther believed in changelings and counseled the Prince of Anhalt to throw a suspected child into the river. A singular preventive. But the most singular preventive of evil to the babe is used in Thuringia, where the father's breeches are nailed against the wall. It is odd that a similar custom should exist in China, where the trousers are fixed to the bedpost so that the waist shall hang lower than the legs, and on them is pinned a piece of red paper with a charm, sending all evil influences into the trousers away from the child. In Germany, as well as in Scotland, some article of the father's wardrobe is thrown over the newborn child so that it will grow strong. It is bathed in salt water in the latter country for a like reason. In Yorkshire, it is thought essential to place the infant in the arms of a maiden, first of all. The lights or fire in the room where the child is born must not, in Denmark, be permitted to go out, or the child runs a risk of being stolen. F.S. Bassett in Globe Democrat. Our second story is particularly brutal. It deals with the exorcism of a changeling, which goes horribly wrong. And this story was from the New Orleans Crescent, September 4th, 1854. Horrible Exorcism Some years since, on the domain of Haywood, as we learn from an old number of the Tipperary Constitution, the death of a child six years old was accomplished with a wantonness of purpose almost incredible. Little Mahoney was afflicted with spinal disease, and, like many other deformed children, possessed the gift, in this case the fatal gift, of acute intellect. For this quality it was decided that he was not the son of his reputed father, but a fairy changeling. After a solemn convocation, it was decreed that the elfin should be scared away, and the mode of effecting this was by holding the child on a hot shovel, and then pumping cold water on his head. This had the effect of extorting a confession of his imposture, and a promise to send back the real Johnny Mahoney. But, 
Ere he could return to Elfland and perform this promise, he died. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, LLC. Music, books, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. Our reader this episode was Serata. Thank you.